Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. The following program contains topics particular to the LGBTQ community. Some discussions may contain mature themes. As such, listener discretion is advised. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. The dreamers and me la, 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 dee, da, 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 Hi everyone. I'm Janine Stanley, the Director of Customer Communications here at IRA, and we have a very special program for everyone in honor of Pride Month. We're joined by Amanda Davis, Project Manager for the LGBTQ History Project in New York City, and we're also joined by Anthony Corona and Gabriel Lopez from Blind Pride International, and we are going to learn a bit about history today. We're also joined for color commentary, as it were, uh, by Agent Alexandra. So now what we will do is turn the program over to Amanda. She has a presentation for us, and Anthony and Gabriel, feel free to chime in. Awesome. Thank you. Welcome. My name is Amanda Davis, the project manager, as you mentioned. Today, I'll be going over LGBTQ historic sites in Greenwich Village. So the NYC LGBT Historic Sites Project was founded in 2015 by historic preservation professionals to document the cultural heritage of the city's LGBT community through historic buildings and landscapes. We not only recognize LGBT-specific history, but also the community's influence on America. Our website allows us to share this fascinating history with the public to expand their knowledge of LGBT history. It features a map of over 350 historic sites in all five boroughs of New York City from the 17th century to the year 2000. Sites include bars, clubs, and restaurants, medical facilities, performance venues, residences of notable LGBT figures, cultural and educational institutions, public spaces, and stores and businesses. Okay, so uh, we are looking at a slide that shows a full map of New York City, and there are small uh, squares overlaid on that map, and each one is color-coded um, to the categories that Amanda mentioned. Um, for example, the blue squares are bars, clubs, and restaurants. The yellow squares are performance venues, etc. Our website also features over 25 curated collections that organize sites by theme allowing people to explore LGBT history through various time periods, groups of people, geographic locations, and activist and cultural movements. Four examples are transgender history, activism before Stonewall, lesbian life before Stonewall, and influential Black New Yorkers. Okay, we're looking at a, uh, a tableau of these various categories um, with uh, a photograph for each one. They're all Black and white. 
Um, for transgender history, we have a photograph of several very colorfully dressed people marching in the streets uh, with some illegible uh, signs, it looks like down a New York City street. Um, with activism before Stonewall, we have an image of uh, a person in a, a business suit coming into the Mattachine Society of New York. There's a, a glass door with that written on it. Um, with lesbian life before Stonewall, we have a picture of a, a woman staring at the, the photographer wearing a, uh, a hat that is kind of tilted down over her eye. And then uh, for influential Black New Yorkers, we have a photograph of two Black, uh, black men who are pointing somewhere into the distance, and one of them has a cigarette in his hand, and it says Birmingham children on a sign that the other one is holding. Our project has also nominated a few sites on our website to the National Register of Historic Places, which is the federal government's honorary list of sites that have been deemed significant to American history. We conduct extensive research and write a report detailing the site's significance to LGBT history that is then reviewed by officials at the state and federal levels. Some sites, such as the Alice Austin House on Staten Island, Yay. are already listed on the National Register decades ago, but their nominations left out important narratives. In that case, you can go back and amend the nomination. With our amendment to the Alice Austin House nomination, our project acknowledged pioneering female photographer Alice Austin, who lived here with school teacher Gertrude Tate, her partner of 53 years. Austin's work includes early turn of the 20th century images of women embracing and dressed in male drag which have since become iconic to the LGBT community. Okay, so here we have an image of the Alice Austin house. Uh, the address is listed to Highland Boulevard, Staten Island. Uh, the house itself is um, kind of uh, a Tudor kind of architecture, lots of latticework, um, and there's flowers in the front yard. Um, next to that is a black and white image of Alice Austin and two friends. Um, they are all wearing elaborate three-piece suits, uh, top hats and other hats like that. Um, they have uh, they have big smiles on their faces and flowers in their lapels. I have a question. This is Anthony. So I'm very familiar with the Alice Dawson house. Um, they have extensive gardens. Is it a close-up or can you see some of the gardens in the photo? This is a, an image, it looks like, of the front of the house. And you can see some flowers off to the left. You can only see a few of the flowers. Gotcha. I imagine there must be a lot more if you say they have extensive I was gardens. going to ask you, Anthony, if you had been there. I have many times. It's a beautiful spot. It is, yeah. And a beautiful view of the harbor, too. Yeah. So we have also worked with the New York City Landmarks Preservation Commission, which is the city agency that regulates designated landmarks and provides the strongest form of protection for historic buildings. The commission designated the Stonewall Inn a local landmark in 2015. After reviewing our list of recommendations for more LGBT landmarks in 2019, the commission designated six more buildings the Audrey Lord residence on Staten Island, the Cafe Chino and LGBT Community Center, both in Greenwich Village, the James Baldwin residence on the Upper West Side, the Women's Liberation Center in Chelsea, and the Gay Activists Alliance Firehouse in Soho. We have images of all of these buildings. Um, the Audrey Lord residence uh, is a 
three-story uh, beige uh, house with a porch. Um, there's a car in the driveway. Uh, all of the others are on city streets. Um, the Cafe Chino has a green awning uh, and a little cafe sign outside. Um, and Stonewall is uh, a two-story building. Uh, the first story is all brick and has uh, has like three pane glass doors um, and long glass shop front windows. Um, the others are all kind of three-story, your basic kind of block buildings that you would see on a New York City street. We're a very small group of four people with interns as well. So we're thrilled to have two social media consultants who help us get our work out there to audiences around the globe through our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts at NYC LGBT sites. And during the pandemic, we have also been providing Zoom talks and putting those recordings on our YouTube page. Amanda, do you have um, yeah. any information on the iconic Brooklyn Club Spectrum? Spectrum, no, I haven't. Uh, we don't have that one, actually. That would be, we are always adding more sites though. So we would love to get that information. Do you happen to know the address? Or, it was, or maybe we could email later. It was on 65th Street. Um, it was originally called 2001 Odyssey. It's where they filmed the dance sequences for Saturday Night Fever. Yes, now I know. I believe that building was demolished. So we, we do have it in our master list, but our website currently um, holds uh, uh, features uh, buildings that are still standing. Gotcha. Um, but we in the future, it would be great to add um, or at least provide a list of demolished sites. I've got plenty works. of pictures if you ever want them. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. Yeah, great, great, terrific. Um, so now I'm gonna share a number of historic sites in the vicinity of the Stonewall Inn, which will hopefully show that even though Stonewall is the most famous of LGBT historic sites, it is far from being the only one. These sites also help contextualize what happened at Stonewall. Uh, here we have a slightly closer image of the Stonewall Inn. Um, in this image, beyond the brick exterior, you can also see that the large glass uh, storefront window, window has the Stonewall Inn in big red, like neon letters written in it. But for those of you who may be asking, what is Stonewall? Let's start there. In the late 1960s, the mafia-run Stonewall Inn was one of the few gay bars in Greenwich Village where patrons could dance. And like many gay bars of the era, were subject to routine police raids. From June 28th to July 3rd, 1969, LGBT patrons at Stonewall and members of the local community took the unusual action of fighting back against one such raid in an event that is now often referred to as the Stonewall Uprising. The events during that six-day period are often credited as the birth of the LGBT rights movement, but Gay activism and organizing had already been taking place in the city and around the country since the 1950s. Instead, Stonewall was a key turning point and a catalyst for explosive growth. In the immediate aftermath of the uprising, large numbers of gay groups formed around the country and thousands of people joined the movement. So here we have two more images of the Stonewall Inn. They're both from 1969. Um, one big difference is that there's a big Stonewall in a signboard that extends out from the building. Um, in one of the images, uh, there's a group of, uh, a kind of diverse group of young people 
uh, all standing outside uh, with smiles on their faces. And it says, Stonewall Uprising Participants in front of the bar, June 29, 1969. Christopher Park, located just across the street from the Stonewall Inn, has been at the center of the LGBT rights movement. Even before the 1969 uprising, the park was a favorite hangout for a, div for a, di a diverse group of often homeless gay street youth and those who might identify today as transgender. By the time of the uprising, crowds took over the park and Christopher Street, and at its peak, several thousand people filled the streets. So here we see the entrance to Christopher Park. Um, there's a brick walkway that goes under a, uh, a gateway that has uh, green vines kind of hanging from it. You can see that there's flowers on others, either side as you walk into the park. And in the distance, I can see um, uh, like statues of four people. Two of them have their arms around each other, and two of them are sitting on a bench. And is this another place? I'm sorry, Amanda. Is this Amanda. another place that you visited, um, Anthony? Yes. Um, I used to take lunch and read books in that um, sitting next to the statues that are sitting on the bench. Oh, that's great. It's a nice spot. Uh, a month after the uprising, gay rights activists. Marty Robinson and Martha Shelley addressed a crowd of several hundred people in the park, capping off a rally that began in Washington Square Park to protest the police's actions at Stonewall. In 1979, the 10th anniversary of the uprising, New York City announced that a commemorative statue by sculptor George Siegel would be placed in Christopher Park. Due to controversy from village residents, LGBT activists, and lack of official support, Siegel's work entitled Gay Liberation was not placed in the park until 1992. Here we have two images. Um, one is uh, entitled Marty Robinson Speaks to a Crowd in Christopher Park, July 27th, 1969. The photo was taken from behind Marty Robinson and uh, to their left, there is a flag uh, where I can see uh, at least one of the uh, those international male symbols, the circle with the cross coming down. Uh, it's linked with another symbol. I can't quite make out the rest of that. Um, Beyond him, uh, you can see a crowd of, I mean, the crowd is endless. It just starts right below him and goes back, 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 just endless people in front of him. Um, and there's, uh, on the right-hand side is the, is a close-up of the statue, uh, the statue's Gay Liberation by sculptor George Siegel, it says. Um, the two figures who are standing, and uh, one has, uh, has his arm on the other one's shoulder, they appear to be male. And the two figures who are sitting on a bench appear to be female, and one has uh, their hand on the other one's knee. In 1999, the 30th anniversary of the uprising, the Stonewall Building, Christopher Park, and the surrounding streets where people fought back were placed on the National Register of Historic Places. This was the first site ever to be nominated to the National Register for its significance to LGBT history. And as a side note, two of our founders, Andrew Delcart and Jay Shockley, wrote this nomination. Stonewall was named a National Historic Landmark one year later in 2000. And of course, in 2016, President Obama declared it a national monument. This, in fact, only covers Christopher Park because a national monument can only be on federally owned land. Uh, here we have an image of the National Park Service map of the Stonewall National Monument boundary. It includes the Stonewall Inn, which is directly opposite Christopher Park. It also includes, and, and then it also includes four more blocks beyond that um, from Greenwich Ave to Waverly Place um, beyond the Stonewall Inn. 
Stonewall may be the most famous symbol of LGBT history around the world, but it is by no means the only LGBT historic site or even the earliest and not by a long shot. As I said earlier, we have sites on our website dating back to the 17th century. For today, however, we'll focus on sites within a short walking distance of Stonewall National Monument that reflect a broader history of LGBT life and activism from the 1930s to the 1970s. The first site is the former Stewart's Cafeteria at 116 7th Avenue South, about a block away from Stonewall. Here we have an image of the former Stewart's Cafeteria. It is a two-story Art Deco building. And uh, the first story is now a Bank of America with a rack of city bikes in front of it. Stewart's Cafeteria, later known as the Life Cafeteria, was located in this Art Deco building in the 1930s and attracted a Bohemian and LGBT following. The large plate glass windows on the ground floor put gay life on full display to the late night crowds who frequented this busy intersection. Regulars included playwright Tennessee Williams and actor Marlon Brando. Here we have an image of the same building from 1933. Uh, and in place of Bank of America, there's a huge, two huge signs on either side of the building that say Stewart's Cafeteria and large plate glass windows with Stewart's written on them. Um, we can also see a very 1930s car going by in front of the building. The gay artist Paul Cadmus depicted Stewart's in his sexually charged 1934 painting, Greenwich Village Cafeteria, which includes the beckoning glance of a man heading to the bathroom. This one's going to be very hard to describe. Um, so it says Greenwich Village Cafeteria, 1934 by Paul Cadmus. Um, there are uh, a lot of people crowded into the space of this image. Um, and there's, um, there's a, a kind of androgyny uh, going on here. There's uh, people falling off of chairs, people shouting what looks like drunkenly. There's some people who look like maybe they're about to kiss. Uh, there is a, uh, a person dressed in a suit who is heading into the bathroom and looking over his shoulder at the viewer as the kind of come hither look. Um, and there's some people, it appears to be, they appear to be passed out on the floor. Well described. Yes. <laughs> So the next site at 337 Bleecker Street takes us to the 1950s. From 1953 to 1960, playwright and activist Lorraine Hansberry resided in the third floor apartment in this building. This is where she wrote her groundbreaking and award-winning play, A Raisin in the Sun, which made her the first Black woman to have her work staged on Broadway when it premiered in 1959. The Lorraine Hansberry residence is a fairly nondescript uh, three-story brick building. It has two stores uh, down on the first floor these days, uh, the Gorin Brothers store and Rituals. While here, Hansberry privately identified as a lesbian and wrote letters to gay and lesbian magazines using a pseudonym, providing early insight into her views on homosexuality and gender expectations in 1950s America. She also had relationships with women and counted many influential lesbians in her social circle. And as an aside, our project recently successfully nominated this site to the National Register of Historic Places. So here we have an image of Lorraine Hansberry wearing a checkered shirt and pants and leaning on her typewriter and looking directly at the viewer. Uh, it says Lorraine Hansberry poses behind her typewriter at her apartment during a photo shoot for Vogue magazine, 1959. On the right-hand side of that, we have 
a short story written by Hansberry using the pen name Emily Jones and submitted to the latter, a national lesbian magazine. Um, the excerpt that's shown is labeled Chanson du Conalis um, and says a story by Emily Jones. And the, the excerpt reads, she was exquisite. The gown was a plain white sheet, the body beneath one long shimmering river of movement, restrained and delicate. The arms reached up in the mood of the song and pulled the emotion of the taut melody to her fingertips. The voice in Gallic tremulo gave out at once passion and indifference, while Martra haunted the room. Another nearby site is the Cafe Chino, which is widely recognized as the birthplace of off-off-Broadway theater and was located on the ground floor of 31 Cornelia Street from 1958 to 1968. It is also highly significant as a pioneer in the development of gay theater at a time when depicting homosexuality on stage was still illegal. Here we have the, uh, the storefront of the former Cafe Chino, which is now the, uh, the Po restaurant, P-O. It says established 1993 on the door. The uh, whole first floor of this otherwise brick building is painted green. Many of its early productions featured gay characters or subject matter. The staging of Lanford Wilson's The Madness of Lady Bright in 1964 was both the Chino's breakthrough hit and an early play to deal explicitly with homosexuality. The Cafe Chino provided an important platform for newly emerging theater artists, many of them gay, to share their work with receptive audiences. The cafe itself was run by Joe Chino, an openly gay man from Buffalo, New York. This is another site that we successfully nominated to the National Register. Okay, on the left, we have the exterior of Cafe Chino from 1960. It's covered in posters and artwork. One of the posters says, this is the Rill, R-I-L-L, -L, speaking. Um, it's very colorful, and there's a lot of colored lights above it uh, spotlighting posters. Uh, on the right-hand side, we have an image of uh, the Cafe Chino Playwrights, Performers, and Crew, 1965. Um, there are seven people in the picture, and Joe Chino is pictured as well. He is wearing a uh, sweatshirt with the sleeves rolled up all the way and has uh, a bit of stubble and short dark hair. Yet another site that we nominated to the National Register was Julius's, a gay bar not too far from Stonewall. On April 21st, 1966, a sip-in was organized by members of the Mattachine Society, one of the country's earliest gay rights organizations to challenge the state liquor authorities' discriminatory policy of revoking the licenses of bars that served known or suspected gay men and lesbians. Uh, so this is one of the only buildings we've seen so far that seems to still be the same organization or business that it was before. It says Julius's on the door in green letters. Uh, the building is three stories. It's kind of like a stuccoed concrete. <laughs> um, and it's on the corner of 10th Street here um, and has a door that takes out straight to the corner. Yes, and I should add, Julius is definitely still there and, and uh, they're great. Would love your patronage. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be there, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> we end a lot of our um, walking tours there. Uh, so the sip-in uh, at Julius's was captured in a famous photograph showing four members of the Mattachine Society being denied service by the bartender after they intentionally revealed that they were, quote, homosexuals. This was one of the earliest pre-Stonewall public actions for LGBT rights, as well as a big step forward in the eventual development of legitimate LGBT bars in New York City. 
Okay, here we have a black and white image. Um, the caption reads, sip in at Julius's bar where four members of the Medellin Society are refused service by the bartender after saying they were homosexuals and wanted to order drinks. April 21st, 1966. Uh, this is a very kind of old school, uh, traditional style bar. There's glasses all lined up along it and uh, behind it. The bartender is a bit older and wearing a sweater with a shirt and tie underneath. Everyone in the bar appears to be male. Everyone is wearing a suit and tie. Um, and the person who the bartender is speaking to, and the bartender has a very aggressive stance toward that person, um, he seems to be uh, asking a question. He seems to have a look of, of questioning on his face. And I should also mention the interior looks exactly as it did. So it's also a really great timepiece for, for visitors today. Um, so by 1972, the Mattachine Society had moved its offices downtown to a building at 59 Christopher Street, which was just a few doors down from Stonewall. By this time, Mattachine's influence was already being superseded by the younger and more radical activist LGBT groups formed after Stonewall. This is a fairly standard uh, New York building. It's a three-story concrete um, it's painted orange on one side and yellow on the other, and there's your kind of classic um, fire escape staircase on the exterior. However, before Stonewall, as in the action at Julius's, Mattachine was an important force in the early years of the gay rights movement. Formed in Los Angeles in 1950, the New York chapter opened in 1955 as the city's first gay rights group. At that time, campaigning for the rights of gay men and lesbians to simply exist openly in society without fear of arrest or persecution was considered radical, along with other, other pioneering groups of the era, such as the Daughters of Politis, a lesbian rights organization founded in San Francisco in 1955, with a New York chapter opening in 1958. These early activists picketed and raised awareness of the LGBT community's lack of basic civil rights. Figures like Frank Kameny, Dick Leisch, Kayla Husen, Randy Wicker, Barbara Giddings, Craig Rodwell, and Ernestine Eckstein were key ac activists in this period and well after the Stonewall Uprising. We have three images here labeled annual reminder pickets in front of Independence Hall, Philadelphia every July 4th between 1965 and 1969. Um, each picture is of a group of people um, <clears throat> who are holding protest signs. They say things like homosexual American citizens, our last oppressed national minority, homosexuals should be judged as individuals. Um, and uh, in the first picture among the group is Frank uh, Kameny. Uh, he is wearing a suit and uh, appears to be balding <laughs> a little bit. Um, and uh, Randy Wicker uh, also appears to be wearing a suit, Barbara Giddings, is wearing a striped dress and she's leading this particular march. She's wearing sunglasses as well. Ernestine Eckstein is pictured on the right. Um, she uh, has short cropped hair, white sunglasses, and she's wearing uh, pants, a shirt, and a vest over her shirt. And Ernestine was also a particularly interesting figure as one of the few, um, and maybe even alone a black woman black figure who was participating in these uh, pickets at the time she was also very much involved in the black civil rights movement happening at the same time if i may um blind pride international our uh, podcast is called pride connection on our june 8th episode we speak about all of these all of these individuals including ernestine and um we just recently lost Kay 
So we speak a lot about um, this actual event and, and the daughters, the Mattachina Society, et cetera. So if guys, if people want to check that out, please do so. That's wonderful. It's really worthy checking out. We got to know Kayla, who's in really well, and we met her, and I spoke to her over the phone several times. Um, so really great people to know in this history. And one thing that could that could and should be noted, she was an activist until the end in her assisted living um, facility. She hosted a once a month gay table for other others from her generation who as some who are actually in this photo. Um, and she was an activist till the very end. Yeah, more energy than many people <laughs> going going strong till 91. Really impressive. Amazing life and person. Uh, so the um, activism that was happening before Stonewall is further highlighted at sites like the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, mm. which Craig, uh, Craig Rodwell, who I just mentioned earlier, uh, he originally opened on Mercer Street in 1967 before moving it to 15 Christopher Street, a block from Stonewall in 1973. By this time, af particularly after Stonewall, Christopher Street was really important uh, in gay life and to the gay community. The store was the first gay and lesbian bookstore on the East Coast and the first of its kind in the nation to operate long term. Uh, the, it, it, build itself as the first in the world, but there was actually uh, one that opened earlier in San Francisco, but it, it didn't last. It wasn't there that long. The Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop is a uh, brick building, three stories with a uh, basement flat as well, basement apartment. Um, and there is a, a storefront there with a glass, with a glass window and a chalkboard sign outside. With its public face and large windows, the bookstore welcomed gay and lesbian New Yorkers and visitors from all over the world who could be assured of a friendly greeting from Rodwell or his multiracial staff. It also hosted book signing and meet the author events that included Tennessee Williams, Rita Mae Brown, and Harvey Firestein. The store operated here until 2009. We have two images here. Uh, the first is Craig Rodwell with his staff in front of the bookshop, 1983. Uh, this is a diverse crowd of fairly young people who appear to be uh, making, you know, making some faces maybe and laughing and joking around. Uh, Craig Rodwell uh, is standing behind them, smiling at the camera and has, uh, it looks like maybe his hair pulled back um, and uh, a, a small beard and a jean jacket on. And the other images of Harvey Firestein. Uh, 1982, Harvey Firestein has uh, big glasses on and big curly hair, um, and he is holding three stuffed animals and the a copy of his book, The Torch Song Trilogy. In March 1970, less than a year after Stonewall, the police raided the Snake Pit Bar and detained many people at the local police station. The gay bar was located in the basement of 215 West 10th Street, just off Bleecker Street. Here we have another um, brick apartment building with uh, with the fire escapes and everything. Um, fairly standard New York fare. At the police station, one person attempted to escape and was impaled on a fence. He was taken to St. Vincent's Hospital and he did survive. The Gay Activists Alliance and the Gay Liberation Front, two groups that had formed after Stonewall, quickly assembled a protest march the results of which demonstrated their effectiveness and inspired more people to become politically active who weren't inspired by the uprising at Stonewall. Okay, here we have uh, two images. The first image is of a group of police. Um, they are, the camera is behind the police 
and they are standing in a line with a police line, uh, one of those tape things in front of them that says police line, do not cross. Um, beyond that line, there is a very large group of people all holding signs. They look very angry. Um, next to that, there is an image of uh, a Gay Activist Alliance flyer for the Snake Pit Raid protest. Um, it is quite long, um, but there is a segment of text that is highlighted. It says, any way you look at it, that boy was pushed. We are all being pushed. And this was in reference to the man who fell out the window uh, in, in an attempt to escape from the police precinct. And so several months later, New York City's very first Pride March was held on Sunday, June 28th, 1970, the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, so very intentional. The starting point was on Washington Place, west of 6th Avenue, around the corner from Stonewall. Here we have kind of a classic New York City view. Um, we have some older buildings with those fire escapes on the right. We have some newer buildings uh, with Brick, uh, brick walls on the left, and in the distance, we can see part of the New York City skyline. Craig Rodwell, the owner of Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop, and several others, including Fred Sargent, uh, his partner, Linda Rhodes, and Ellen Brody, planned the event for several months in Rodwell's apartment. And to their surprise, the event attracted thousands of participants. Here we have uh, a shot of Craig Rodwell and Fred Sargent. They're both wearing striped shirts and have uh, have light hair that seems to be parted on the side. Uh, there's a sign behind them, a street sign that says books. Um, on the right, we have images of Linda Rhodes and Ellen Broidy. Um, they both have uh, short cropped uh, dark hair. Linda Rhodes has glasses. They're both wearing shirts that say Lavender Menace. And that's from an action that they took part in uh, after this Pride March, separate from this event, but great photos of them. Um, so known at the time as the Christopher Street Liberation Day March, the route moved north up 6th Avenue and ended with a gay-in in Central Park's Sheep Meadow. Historian Lillian Faderman noted that never in history had so many gay and lesbian people come together in one place and for a common endeavor. The annual march contributed greatly to solidifying the significance of Stonewall in LGBT history. Absolutely. Okay, here we have several images from this event. Um, it, there's a very diverse crowd, um, big smiles on a lot of faces, um, uh, a lot of street signs, or sorry, a lot of protest signs that say Gay Activist Alliance, Gay Liberation Front, Lesbians Unite, Gay Pride, New York, Mattachine. Um, in the final image from this event, it seems that we have the gay in. Everyone is sitting in a field. It's absolutely packed. You can see people as far as the eye can see. Um, on the right-hand side here, we have an image uh, of a poster for the first Pride March, 1970. Um, it has the word gay written in very kind of thinned out typeface, uh, repeated over and over and over. So it looks kind of like stripes. And it says, Christopher Street Liberation Day, Sunday, June 28th, assemble at Sheridan Square, New York, New York City, 12 to 1 p.m. The Pride March in Manhattan inspired marches throughout the city. Queen's Pride took place, uh, first took place in 1993, Brooklyn Pride in 1997, Bronx Pride in 1998, and Staten Island Pride in 2005. Okay, we have several images from these events as well. 
Um, we have a group of people uh, with a big pink sign that says Queens Lesbian and Gay Pride Committee, a family of pride. And then there's other signs behind them that say friends. Um, and then there's another group of people uh, with a big white sign with a rainbow on it. Uh, the rainbow is the Brooklyn Bridge. It has, you can you can see on either side the entrances to the bridge and then the whole bridge is made up of the rainbow. It says Brooklyn Pride, uh, lesbian and gay, bisexual and transgender multicultural parade and festival. In the middle here, we have a flyer for Bronx Pride 1999. Thank you party, Sunday, October 10th on Unionport Road. And on the right, uh, we have an image of the Marshall uh, leading the 2005 Staten Island Parade. He's waving a, an American flag. And behind him, there is a group of people uh, holding a purple sign with a rainbow on it that says Staten Island Pride. I was there. <laughs> oh, great. I was there. Wonderful. Craig Rodwell, who died of cancer in 1993, did not live to see most of those marches. But the uh, following quote of his reveals how importantly he viewed these acts of pride and community. He said, I used to dream about, daydream even, about millions of homosexuals marching through the streets openly and everything. And that's come to pass in my life. It was more than a dream. It was almost a vision in a way of the future. We are the world. We really are. They would they use that quote every year at the, at the Pride Parade. Oh, that's great. Yeah. This slide uh, includes that quote and also has a picture of a young Craig Rodwell holding a sign up over his eyes that says, gay is good. Putting Rodwell's dream into context, when he, par when he participated in the first ever protest for gay rights in the United States, which happened in 1964 outside the U.S. Army building at 31 39 Whitehall Street in Lower Manhattan, only a handful of people, five to be exact, attended. Fast forward to last summer, June 2020, when a crowd of some 15,000 people participated in Brooklyn Liberation, an action for Black trans lives, in front of the Brooklyn Museum. It's a pretty striking comparison. The images are really striking uh, when you see them next to each other. The first one is just a city street with five lone people, each one carrying a poster board, 1964, wearing suits and dresses. Um, the person at the front, I can read their sign, it says something like army invades sexual privacy, uh, but each of them has a sign, it's black and white. And then on the right-hand side, we have an image from above of the Brooklyn Museum with a crowd of 15,000 people in front of it. I mean, it's just packed with people. It's incredible to see the difference. And finally, Stonewall, of course, has become a global symbol of LGBT pride, oppression, reflection, celebration, and activism, where marriage equality was celebrated in 2015, but also where people remembered those lost during the 2016 mass shooting at Pulse, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. We hope our project connects people to even more sites of significance to LGBT history, and I'll end by saying that we're always looking for more sites to add to our website. So if any of you listening have sites in mind, we would love to hear from you. And you can email us at info at nyclgbtsites.org. The final image here, uh, it says June Pride Month, Oppression, Reflection, Celebration, and Activism. There are three images of the Stonewall Inn. Uh, you can see in each image, you can see the glass 
window with the bright red neon uh, lettering, the stone wall in. Um, in one of the images, it's just that uh, with a with a bunch of signs and flowers and flags all placed in front of that window. It says stop the hate um, and uh, love conquers hate, things like that. Uh, that's labeled memorial in front of Stonewall for victims of the Pulse nightclub shooting 2016. Um, in the other images, uh, they're from a celebration. Um, there is an image of Edie Windsor, who is a, a an older person with kind of uh, platinum hair, uh, wearing a, a suit jacket, addressing the crowd. Um, and the uh, other image is of a huge group of people with a big equality sign, um, uh, waving their signs and flags in the air with big smiles on their faces in front of the Stonewall Inn. Um, beyond that, there is a rainbow flag and it says, come celebrate where pride began. Wow, that, that is absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Amanda, for this great presentation. Um, I'd like to swing it over for a minute here to Gabriel and Anthony to tell us a little bit about Blind Pride International. So this group has had a long history. Um, and I remember when people were organizing to form the group uh, within the American Council of the Blind. And it was it was quite the uh, interesting battle, actually. Uh, and the group faced a lot of opposition within that organization. Oddly enough, you know, you would think that one group that has been discriminated against and has, you know, fought against oppression and things like that would actually get it as to why. But it took a while, but uh, they finally became an actual affiliate. And then Blind Pride uh, evolved from that. So, Anthony, what is the group doing these days and how can we find them? Well, hi, thank you. Um, I'm Anthony Corona. I'm the current secretary of Blind Pride International. I identify as he, him, um, and sometimes alpha. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that question because I, I referenced Pride Connection, our podcast, um, and we've been going for oh, about a year and a half now, strong. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just recorded two episodes, the episode that I just mentioned, which will be released on, on the 8th. Um, and the episode that was released on the 1st actually spoke of the founding of what was once called B-Flag, which is now Blind Pride International. Um, we have some notables from the ACB community um, who spoke about it. A year ago, when we celebrated 20 years, we did the same thing, but we took it from the organization's perspective. All of that is in podcast form. You can find it on all your major podcast catchers by saying by putting in uh, ACB or American Council of the Blind Pride Connection. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Gabriel in a second, but I did want to remark, Jeannie, and I know you know a lot about mm -hmm. the history, and I found it when I was learning the history of, of both Blind Pride and the American Council of the Blind, I found it a very interesting dichotomy that American Council of the Blind formulated out of the need to be unfettered, to be unstructuralized, and, and to protest against some of the norms that were held by other blind blind and consumer organizations at that point. And so when when Blind Pride, once known as B-Flag, of course, was forming, I just find it so interesting, like you said, that there was so much pushback from an organization that came from the same the same type of 
of protest. Yeah, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully Gabriel, everyone wised up a bit. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, Gabriel, who is the current president of Blind Pride International, can tell us a little bit more about how um, how we were founded and what else we're doing for Pride Month. Awesome. Yes. Well, like Anthony and Janine have said, my name is Gabriel Lopez Cafari. I'm current president of Blind LGBT Pride International. And um, of course, I identify, identify as he, him, his. Uh, no other additionals like Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> Although some days <laughs> I... I, I feel like I identify <laughs> as an alien in, okay. this, in this world. <laughs> Full disclosure, because of Blind Pride International, we found each other and fell in love. We are, we are partners engaged. Yes. That's an awesome but story. <laughs> yes. And um, yes, Anthony eloquently uh, gave a briefing of uh, B-Flag, now BPI. Um, it, it is very interesting. We do um, encourage uh, those of you watching and listening to us here to check out Pride Connection because we've uh, done a very comprehensive um, compilation with, with, with key players uh, in the formation of B-Flag back then, which was uh, the original name, um, Blind Friends of Lesbians and Gays. And um, its incorporation as a special interest affiliate of the American Council of the Blind. Um, there was some pushback. There was a lot of um, discussion whether uh, an organization um, of this nature was needed under the umbrella of the American Council of the Blind. Uh, like Janine wisely said it, um, you know, reason prevailed and um, and uh, many, many people, um, and, and I, I hate to say names because I always miss important <laughs> names, but obviously um, on the side of the American Council of the Blind, um, you know, there was the leadership of Paul Edwards uh, and so many others that you will hear in our programming, like Penny Reader and uh, Terry Pacheco. Um, on the side of uh, what was uh, becoming the flag, uh, we have um, our first president and leader and who actually was the master mind behind all this project, uh, Rob Hill, who is an institution not only for BPI, but also in ACB, um, founding members, Leah Gardner, Dwayne Estes, uh, Don Brown, Harvey Miller, um, and so many others. And thankfully, all still yes. with us. Thankfully, and all still with us. And, uh, and different age groups. Uh, uh, just, to, just to make justice to those who were younger, <laughs> a.k.a. Leah. Um, the, uh, the, initial, the, the initial uh, life of B-Flag was very interesting. Once we got incorporated as, an, a, special, as a special interest affiliate of uh, the American Council of the Blind, uh, we went through multiple stages. Um, there was, you know, even uh, through the uh, life within ACB, under the ACB family, there were some events that marked uh, what BPI became. 
uh, like for example, the infamous situation in a convention, I believe it was 2005, where um, the BPI banner was stolen or destroyed or both stolen and destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, as, as the LGBTQ history has it, um, BPI is not any different. Um, so our members back then responded in different ways. Some of them alienated themselves from uh, the parent organization. Some of them decided to fight more for inclusion. And thank God, uh, you know, we then changed our name to be more inclusive and more representative of who we are, which is Blind LGBT Pride International or BPI. And um, now we engage a lot in education and advocacy efforts. Uh, we do a lot in terms of bringing uh, a lot of diversity and inclusion initiatives to the forefront of ACB. Last year, we had an amazing, amazing uh, show uh, and uh, an amazing display of education in terms of uh, pronoun and inclusive language. And um, we continue to do that. Our presence at conventions is very, very um, is legendary. legendary. You know, we have incorporated a lot of, you know, different and new events as, you know, wine tastings, which have even gone virtual now. Uh, we do a lot of mind, body, wellness. Um, we obviously cover a lot of LGBTQ topics, movies, uh, iconic movies with audio description. Uh, we always try to incorporate an LGBTQ topic. Our mixers are famous and we have a dare to share, which is by invitation only. Uh, safe space for everyone to talk about those taboo subjects that they don't feel comfortable, they don't feel safe touching in any other uh, space. So basically, BPI has become not only a, 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 a symbol of advocacy and education um, for the intersectionality of those of us who are blind or visually impaired members of the LGBTQ community, but also a source of education and knowledge. We have incorporated uh, introduce resolutions uh, to the uh, leadership of ACB, which have passed, like, for example, a non-discrimination resolution in which ACB agrees to not hold uh, conventions or any other um, large gathering um, in cities that do not have an LGBTQ protection mandate mm -hmm. or anti-discrimination mandate. And last year, we passed a resolution that was quickly incorporated, which uh, we urged the um, analysts, uh, which is National Library Services, to incorporate an LGBTQ category, thanks to the efforts of uh, one of our lifetime members, Terry Gorman, who had already compiled a listing of LGBTQ titles uh, already in the BARD platform. So now we do have a search. Um, engine that allows us to search for LGBTQ fiction and nonfiction titles under the NLS and BARD platforms. Uh -huh. So those are some of the wow. things we're doing. <laughs> we continue our work. And, uh, you know, like I said, BPI is not only about education and advocacy, but we also bring the fun and we like to make uh, people welcome, make pe feel people welcome. And uh, most importantly, what I always say is that BPI is a safe space, welcoming, non-judgmental, where all are welcome, come as you are. And what we also, also uh, encourage is ally, 
ally participation. You do not have to be LGBTQ to be part of our organization and our family. Uh, we love our allied members. Uh, some of our strongest members are allies. And uh, BPI is a space for all. So please check us out at blindlgbtpride.org. That is blindlgbtpride.org and hit us up with any questions. I did want to, and I was going to mention that 25 convention. It was quite infamous as uh, BFLAG was going to become an affiliate. And uh, goodness, it, it was quite the demonstration. And ironically enough, that convention, I believe, was held in Birmingham, Alabama, which it, just the irony piled on irony there. <laughs> So, yeah. Yeah. So. And that led to that led to the resolution that Gabriel spoke mm -hmm. of about ACB being mindful, and hopefully, you know, with Asian Pacific, uh, a conversation that BPI had yes. in two parts and social justice conversations, um, you know, will be mindful as as a parent organization of going to places, you know, that have infamously, you know. Um, discriminated against any of our population, whether it be LGBTQ, African-American, Asian-American, you know, we, we really want to make sure that wherever we are, we're safe and welcomed. Absolutely. And what a wonderful way to end our Pride Month special. I would like to thank Anthony and Gabriel from Blind Pride International. I'd like to thank Amanda Davis from the LGBT History Project in New York City. Thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. Yeah, thank you. And what a great agent. Absolutely. Thank you to, thank you to Alexandra yes. for the <laughs> awesome descriptions of Amanda's yeah. wonderful slides. And, uh, you know, this is what IRA is about. We are about adding that little bit more to presentations like Amanda's at conferences, at uh, museums, etc. So if you liked what you heard uh, and would like to know more, we are at www.ira.io. This has been Janine Stanley. Thank you for listening to this very special presentation. Happy Pride. upon a time I had plenty of nothing which is fine with me I had rhythm music love the sun the stars and the moon above had the clear blue sky and the deep blue sea that was when the best things in life were free then time went by and now I have plenty of plenty which is fine with me cause I still got love still got rhythm look at what I've got to go with them could ask for anything more, I hear you query. Who could ask for anything more? Well, let me tell you, dearie. I've got diamonds, got a yacht, and a guy I adore. I'm so happy with what I've got I want more Count your blessings One, two, three I just hate keeping score Any number is fine with me As long as it's more As long as it's more 
I'm no mathematician. All I know is addition. I find counting a boy. Keep the number mountain, your account knows accounting. More. More. I've got rhythm, music too, just as much as before. Got my guy and my sky of blue. Now, however, I own the view. More is better than nothing true. But nothing's better than more, more, more. Nothing's better than Fun, why not two? And if you like two, you might as well have four. And if you like four, why not a few? Why not a slew more? More. If you got a little, why not a lot? Add it to the middle and get to be an it'll. Every drop and tittle adds to the pot. Soon you got the kid as well as the caboodle. More. More. Never say when, never stop planning. If it's gonna rain, let it pour. Help you with 10, help you with 20. If you like a penny, wouldn't you like many much more? Or does that sound too greedy? That's not greed, no indeedy. That's called stocking the store. Gotta fill your cupboard, remember Mother Hubbard? More, more, each possession. You possess helps your spirits to soar. That's what's soothing about excess. Never settle for something less. More is better than nothing, yes. But nothing's better than more, more, more. Except all, all, all. Except all. Ah, Except once you have it all, you may find all else a bore. That though things are bliss. There's one thing you miss, and that's more, 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 I want more. Thank you for listening to the show. We'd like to invite you to send any comments, questions, or just join our conversation. Email us at membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That's membership at blindlgbtpride.org. And join our conversation. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org.
lovers, the dreamers and me. La 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 dee, la la la, la 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 dee.